Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Live with Lon. So glad that you're with us today. So uh, praise the Lord. And uh, we're going to pray now, and then we're going to dig into the scripture. So let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your wonderful word that illuminates us and instructs us and encourages us and teaches us revelation. That is, information uh, about you and about the afterlife and about the plan of salvation and about the world that we could never figure out on our own. So today, as we tackle a subject, which in which clearly you're giving us information we could never know on our own, encourage our hearts and use it in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, what? Amen. And what? Amen. Okay. Now, what do we study here on Live with Lon? Tell me, we study the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, right? And then we apply it uh, to our lives. And that's what we're going to do today. And the reason I said in my prayer uh, that our passage today tells us about information we could never discover on our own is because our information today that Jesus teaches us from the Bible, we're using the New King James Version, is about the afterlife, which we obviously could never discover that information on our own. So, here we go. I was with my good friend Jack Sternberg, Dr. Jack Sternberg, uh, last week. He is a uh, uh, an oncologist and an internist who practices in Hot Springs, Arkansas, in Little Rock, Arkansas. He has uh, retired for the most part now, although he still, still does some volunteer work at the VA hospital there. And he listens every week, and he said to me, <laughs> he said, good grief, Lon, when are we getting out of John chapter 8? And I said, not quite yet. Still got a little more. And folks, uh, maybe he uh, is expressing your frustration, like John chapter 8, oh no, not another week. Hey, we're in no hurry. This is the value and the wonder of doing verse-by-verse -verse Bible study is that you don't just skip over things just to do topical preaching. You take them verse-by-verse, -verse, and every time you get to something that is significant, or you stop and deal with it. So uh, this is what we do, expository, expositional, verse-by-verse -verse Bible study. This is the way to do it. So you get a balanced diet from the scripture. And so today, we're in John chapter 8. Sorry, Jack, but we'll be out of it soon. Now, we pick up at the end of the chapter where Jesus and the rabbis are arguing about who he is. And remember, this is where he says that famous statement before Abraham was, I am. But three times in this chapter, he is claimed to be the great I am who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, as we saw a week or so ago. Today, we pick up in John chapter 8, 
and let's pick up together in verse 51. Most assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he or she shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets are dead. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets who are dead? Whom do you make yourself out to be? Well, that's the magic question, isn't it? And Jesus answered and said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Look what Jesus says here. They say, you're not even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That's verse 56, and that's the verse we want to look at today. So let's take that verse apart, which is what good exegetical preaching does. Make sure we understand all the parts. We'll put them back together, and then we'll talk about so what. Now, first of all, what does it mean that Abraham saw my day, Jesus said? What's that mean? Well, Jesus here is referring to his coming to earth, to his time here on earth, where he came in the incarnation, the virgin birth, when he lived a sinless life, when he died on the cross to purchase our sins, when he rose from the dead to confirm the plan of salvation, and where he ascended back into heaven to wait until his second coming. This is Jesus's day that he's referring to here. And he says that Abraham re rejoiced to see Jesus's day. Now, what this means is open to discussion. The very common theory that commentators have is that Abraham saw Jesus's day by faith. Uh, not literally, but he saw it by faith. He looked forward down the corridors of time, and by faith, he understood that Jesus was coming to do all the things that he did and cement into place the plan of salvation. You say, well, how would Abraham even have known about Jesus' day? Where in the Old Testament uh, does God inform him about the, the events of Jesus' 
virgin birth, sinless life, death on the cross, resurrection, ascension into heaven. Well, nowhere does God spell all that out for Abraham. However, in the sacrifice of Isaac, Genesis 22, where Moses puts his son Isaac on the altar and is about to sacrifice him, and God says, no, don't do that. There's a substitute that's a, a, a ram with his horns caught in the brambles. Take him and sacrifice the substitute. They say, these commentators, that this is substitutionary atonement, although the reason Isaac was being sacrificed had nothing to do with atonement. But it was substitutionary, right? The lamb, the ram in the place of Isaac. And therefore, Abraham understood from this that there was going to be a great substitute sacrificed for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, the ram, by the way, didn't rise from the dead either. So if Abraham understood the whole plan of salvation, including the resurrection, the ascension, the vicarious suffering of the Lord on the cross, paying for our sins, I don't know. I, the Bible records the Lord never telling Abraham that that's what was going on in Genesis 22. So, my personal opinion is that that is not the correct interpretation of John 8, 56. Jesus saw my day. I believe it's a literal seeing that Abraham had. That Abraham literally saw Jesus, born of a virgin. That he literally saw him living a sinless life. He literally saw him dying on the cross. He literally saw him rising from the dead. And he literally saw him ascending back into heaven. You say, well, where was Abraham that he saw all this? Well, he was in heaven, alive. You say, and he could see what was going on here on earth? That's what Jesus says, doesn't he? Yes. Now, there are two, two passages in the New Testament that confirm this idea that Abraham is alive right now and in heaven. Number one, uh, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is arguing with the uh, Sadducees about whether or not there's really a, a resurrection. I'm a little, little, little live. Whether there's really a life, people after, they live on after the grave. And here's what he says to them. I'm in verse 31, Matthew 22. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Notice present tense. Now, where did God say that? God said it from the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3. Uh, this is 600 years after Abraham lived, 500 years after Isaac lived, 400 years after Jacob lived, and yet he still uses the present tense. I, I am the God still of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Watch, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Why do you use the present tense? Why didn't he say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, friends, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. That's why he used the present tense. And this is hundreds of years later. So where are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, they're in heaven, alive uh, with the Lord. Now, one other passage, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And this is the famous story of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you remember, uh, the rich man was wealthy and Lazarus was a beggar that used to lie on the ground outside of the gate waiting for crumbs of food to be tossed to him by the rich man, and yet the rich man never did, and they both died. Now watch. Let's pick up the story in Luke 16, verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, uh, uh, heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And the story goes on with him having a conversation with Abraham. Abraham's in heaven. The rich man's in hell. And he and Abraham have a conversation. You say, well, that's just a parable. Folks. Number one, Jesus never calls this a parable. And number two, no other parable actually uses the, re the, the name of a person in it, like Lazarus, the, the beggar. No other parable uses a person's name. Many commentators believe Lazarus was a real guy. The rich man was a real person. And this is a real story, historically accurate story. And I do too. So, even if it was a parable, it's clear that as Jesus tells the parable, he is telling us that Abraham is in heaven. Now, what about this idea that Abraham in heaven can see what's going on here on earth? Well, before I talk about that, what about the idea here in Luke 16 that Abraham can see what's going on in hell? He and the rich man have a conversation. <clears throat> the rich man talks to him about his five brothers. Uh, the rich man asks for Abraham to send Lazarus, the beggar, to come cool his tongue because he's in torment in the fire of hell. And, uh, and, and they're obviously able to see each other. More on that in a moment. But let's turn to the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17 the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus, when he was transfigured up on the mountain in front of Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says, verse 2, he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. And Luke's gospel says that what they talked about was his coming sacrifice on the cross in Jerusalem. Here's Moses and Elijah. 
they've been dead for uh, yeah, over a thousand years or a thousand years almost for Elijah, 1,500 years for Moses. And yet here they are and they're alive and they're actually seeing what's going on here on earth. In fact, they came down and had a conversation with Jesus here on earth that Peter, James, and John heard. Uh, this is not a hallucination. Uh, this is not uh, hypnotism. Uh, they really saw Moses and Elijah. So much so that Peter says, let me build a chapel to you, a chapel to Moses, and a chapel to Elijah. That's how real uh, these two men were. So is it any wonder that if he's in, he's in heaven, Abraham was a, is able to see what's going on here on earth? Let's go back to John 8. Abraham, because he's alive forevermore in heaven, saw my day, that is, the events of Jesus' life from the virgin birth to the ascension. Now watch, he rejoiced to see my day. Well, why not? There's everything to rejoice about. But Jesus is here buying the salvation of you and me and everybody else who believes in him. Abraham rejoiced to see his day, and he saw it. Abraham did. Aorist tense in the Greek language, simple past tense. Abraham saw, in reality, Jesus' day in the events here on earth. He rejoiced, he saw his day, and uh, was glad as the Bible says. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask our most important question. And you know that question. What is it? Come on, say it with me. Come on. One, two, three. So what? Yes. And as my good friend, Jackie Gleason said, what is it? How sweet it is. You bet. Now, what's the not a sermon, just a thought? What's the point here I want you to take home? Well, this is an amazing uh, verse, a bit of revelation, an amazing verse of scripture. What does it tell us? Well, it tells us, first of all, that after we die here on earth, we stay alive forevermore if we know the Christ and we go into heaven uh, to be with him forever. Number two, it tells us that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and Elijah, all these great people are still alive. They're still in heaven walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will meet them one day. What a wonderful thing. Number three, it tells us that they were able to see from heaven what is going on here on earth. Abraham saw my day and was glad. It tells us that Moses and Elijah were able to come down and to see what's happening right here on earth and even have a conversation with someone here on earth, the Lord Jesus. And finally, what our passage and its corollary passages tell us today is that apparently the people in heaven can see the people in hell, Abraham and Lazarus, uh, could see the rich man in hell, 
And the rich man in hell could see Abraham and Lazarus in heaven. So apparently the people in hell can see heaven. Amazing. Now, you say, Lon, aren't you reading a little bit into maybe some of that? Okay, listen, I admit it's not a stone cold case like the deity of Christ or like the virgin birth or like the resurrection. There, you know, I'm, I'm trying to piece all this together, this revelation from God, and figure out what is the Bible really teaching us about the afterlife. But I think I'm on very strong ground based on the scriptural evidence that I've just shared with you. We take the scripture literally, unless the Bible tells us not to, and the Bible in none of these passages that we've studied tells us not to, so, therefore, under those assumptions, I think everything I've just said to you is probably correct. Now, I got a, an email from a gentleman who was listening uh, to a message I did at McLean Bible Church called What the Afterlife Looks Like, where I talk about this fact that people in heaven and hell can see the other place and the other people. And he said, I was intrigued by the statement that people in heaven and hell can see each other. My question is, how can heaven be a place of joy with God wiping our tears away if people in heaven can see the suffering of loved ones in hell that didn't make it to heaven. I'm a born-again believer, but I have a child and a grandchild that are not. And even though I've witnessed to them and constantly pray for them, thus far they have rejected the faith. To have a consciousness of them being lost through eternity and not feel sadness and pain is a great mystery that I cannot wrap my head around. What are your thoughts? That's a very interesting email. And he makes a very interesting point and asks a very cogent question. What's the answer? Well, first of all, I don't know the answer. How am I supposed to know? Revelation means God's revealing stuff to us, information to us we could never figure out ourselves. He seems to reveal that people in heaven and hell can see each other since he doesn't call the story of Lazarus and the rich man a parable. But he doesn't reveal how that cannot cancel out the joy of heaven. So I don't know, sir. I don't know. Uh, but I have a guess, and it's only a guess. And that is that perhaps... When we're in heaven, the awareness, the consciousness of the fact that these people who are in hell are there completely righteously in keeping with the holiness of God and the absolute justice of God Perhaps that takes away this 
issue of sadness and remorse that uh, we have for them, uh, maybe that it, it gets swallowed up in a sense of the absolute justice and right, rightness of them being there. I don't know. I have relatives who I'm fairly sure are going to be in hell. And I don't know. Now, one final thing and we're done. I want to go back to the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. And I want you to see, look with me at verse 24. It says, and he cried and said, this is the rich man in hell, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, look at this, verse 26, between us and you, between heaven and hell, between saved people in the afterlife and lost people, there is a great gulf. Another word for this would be a great chasm like the Grand Canyon, fixed, permanently in place, set in concrete so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those who want to come from there in hell where you are pass to us. Want to talk about some more revelation? This seems to indicate, let me read it to you again, that those who want to pass from here to you in hell cannot. Why would anybody want to leave heaven and pass to hell to, 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 to someone? I think because they felt such compassion for, they feel such compassion uh, for the people who are being tormented and suffering in hell, that if they were able, they would leave heaven and go bring some water to them to cool their tongue or go uh, try to soothe them in some way just out of common decency and compassion and mercy. But Abraham says they can't. There's a chasm that nobody can traverse. No human can traverse, even in the afterlife. Nor can anybody come from the afterlife in hell and go across that chasm to the afterlife in heaven. That's what Abraham says. That's what the Bible says. Wow. I remember one time I took my boys, and I've told this story before, to visit the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium. We were out in California. We'd always wanted to go to Dodger Stadium. And we loved arriving early at ball games, whether it was the Orioles or whoever it was, and trying to snag a, a batting practice home runs that came into the stands. So we got there nice and early to do this, and we had tickets fairly near uh, home plate. And... 
I went out, we went out to the bleacher section to, go, to gain entrance from the parking lot. And the man said, I'm sorry, you, those tickets don't work for the bleacher section. You've got to go sit in the main section. And I'm like, well, yeah, uh, but we paid all this money to sit in the main section. The bleacher seats are cheaper. But let us, we'd like to come in and snag some uh, balls, and then we'll just walk around the stadium to the other section. He goes, you can't do that. The the bleachers and the main section of the stadium have a a space in between. They're separated. They're, you, you can't walk just all the way around. I said, well, then we'll just come back out the door into the parking lot, walk on over to the main section, and go in. And he said, you can't do that either. Once we stamp your ticket... For the bleacher section, you can't go over and go in the other section. It's already been canceled and stamped. So I went over in the main section, and we went right down to the very edge, on down the right field, uh, down the first baseline, to where the main stadium ended. And you could see the bleachers. They were right maybe, I don't know, 50 feet, 100 feet across this grassy uh, thing uh, behind the, the home run fence. But you, you know, there was no way to get down in there you, unless you jumped from the main section. And so I asked the guard the same question. How do we get around there? You can't. But there's got to be a way. Nope. But, but look at my kids. We're here from Virginia. Nope. Uh, but sir, finally I said, hey, look, can we go down to the first row, climb on the field, walk over there and climb in the bleachers? And he's like, ha. <laughs> You kidding? Yeah, you want to have handcuffs on? No. Friends, we tried everything we could to get into those bleachers to snag home run balls in batting practice, and we couldn't get in. Why? Why? Because there was a great chasm fixed. <laughs> How about that? There was a great gulf set in concrete between the two so that somebody who wanted to go from the main section into the bleachers could not and somebody from the bleachers who wanted to come in the main section could not this is just what abraham says the people from hell can't come up here into heaven and the people from heaven can't come down to you there is a great chasm fixed set in concrete, that no one, no human in the afterlife can traverse. Now, can angels traverse it? I don't know. Can the Lord Jesus converse it or traverse it? Well, I'm sure he can, but the Bible doesn't actually say. I don't know whether angels can go across it, but no human in the afterlife can. Why is that important? Because, folks... All the people that we have never shared the Lord with and who are going to hell, we hold out, we, we, we all as human beings hold out some hope that maybe in the afterlife uh, something can happen and maybe even though they may end up in hell, they can somehow make the jump to light speed and get into heaven. Nope, there's a great chasm fixed. Or, or maybe people we've shared the Lord with but, but like this man's children, they've not trusted the Lord. That maybe when they go in the afterlife, there's some kind of second chance for them uh, that where they can jump to light speed and go to heaven.
Nope. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Look at this with me. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And it is appointed for men and women once to die, and after this comes the judgment. There's no second chance once you leave the earth. Once you leave the earth, once you die, judgment. Uh, that's it. There's no purgatory. Uh, there's no soul sleep. There's no uh, temporary holding pen uh, where we have the chance to get out of hell and get into heaven. No. Sorry. So those people uh, that you shared with but have not come to Christ, my gosh, and those people that you've not shared with, but that you meet along the way, whether they be at the grocery store clerk or the uh, UPS delivery person you know, or the person that you meet uh, checking out at CVS or whatever. If they don't know Christ, they're going to hell and there is no second chance. There's a great chasm fixed. This is revelation about the afterlife that we're told in the Bible, which we could never know on our own, but Jesus tells us. And that's why it's so important that we share our faith. And that's why it's so important that with people we've shared with, we keep praying and praying and praying for them because there is no second chance once you leave this life. It's judgment, and once you're judged and sent to hell for not knowing Christ, there's no getting out of there. That's why Dante said that over hell was a sign that says, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Abandon all hope, ye who who enter here. So let me close by saying that we tend to hold out for, uh, for two kinds of hope vainly for people who don't come to Christ. Number one, that there's another way to get to heaven by being a sincere follower of Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, whatever. And there are more than one way to get to heaven. Bible says absolutely that's wrong. And the other hope that we vainly hold out is that once they leave this earth in an unbelieving state, somehow, some way, there'll be a second chance. And the Bible says, I'm sorry, that's not true either. And so this should provide fire in our soul to share Christ with people. Fire in our, our deep, deepest bosom to go out and share Christ with people. Knowing what we know from the Bible about the afterlife, that there is no other way to get to heaven, and there is no second chances once we leave this earth. May God make us soul winners, my brother and my sister. May God help us overcome our embarrassment, which we all feel sometimes. 
and get out there and talk about the Lord Jesus anyway. For people's sake, for our loved one's sake, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing to us things we could never discover on our own about the afterlife today. And Lord, help us to take this to heart. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times we have shrunk back from sharing our faith because of being ashamed or embarrassed. But remind us what Paul said, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I am not ashamed of it. Lord, help us. Why should we be ashamed of the only message that can deliver people's souls from hell and transform their earthly life? Make us soul winners, vocal verbal, brave soul winners for the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. And everybody said, what? Amen. And what? Amen. All right. Pray for me uh, in the Holy Land. About a weekend, I'm going to give a salvation message and ask people on the trip who have never trusted Christ to raise their hands and pray the sinner's prayer with me. Every year, we have a half dozen, a dozen or more people do this. So pray that their hearts will be ready and that we can even see people come to saving faith in Christ in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. God bless you.